Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we speak with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, we are joined by Justin Searles, who is a programmer, speaker, and co-founder of TestDouble, a distributed software agency founded in Columbus, Ohio. Justin Searles, welcome to Maintainable. Hey, I'm really glad to be here. So first off, given your experience in the industry, what do you believe are a few common traits that a software application's code base is being well-maintained? Yeah, this is a tricky one. As somebody who comes and visits a lot of people's code bases, you know, several times a year, I'll just sort of swoop in and try to take stock of things really quickly. I try to work outside in typically. So I start with the common things like looking at the readme or whatever kind of initial documentation they have. How easy is it for me to get up and running? Like if it's pretty straightforward following conventional commands and I can kind of get up and running independently without a whole lot of fuss. That's usually a good sign. It can often also be a sign that they're used to onboarding people easily and that they respond to any pain in onboarding by like improving the process. Sometimes when like, you know, just getting up and running, getting installed, getting like a local version of of the server or services going, sometimes when that's really, really painful, it can be a sign that the team doesn't onboard people very often or when they do, it can be, you know, really arduous and painful and they haven't responded to that pain. So that's maybe the first thing that I look at. The second thing I do, again, thinking outside in, is take a look at whatever dependencies they're using. So if it's a Ruby project, I'm going to start by shopping through the gem file. Nowadays, almost no matter what language you use, you've got a package.json file. And so I'd start looking at that and try to understand a few things like, are things generally up to date? Are there a lot of dependencies or not a lot of dependencies? And, And as I'm looking at the long list of dependencies, I'm kind of comparing that to my understanding of the size and scope of the application, trying to get a sense of... Does this team tend to default to pulling in external help from like third party tools or do they tend to build their own stuff as they go? From there, I start to look at, you know, for example, if it's like a a web application that that just does like server side rendered HTML most of the time, I'm going to want to start looking at the server side routes, see how well the routes are maintained, if things are straightforward, if they're conventional. Sometimes things are just really, really hairy and it's hundreds and hundreds of lines long and not very well maintained. And usually just those first few indicators are pretty good predictors of how well are things organized as you go down the stack, as you look at like control and then models and then, you know, supporting code. What I'm really looking for is, are things named clearly? Are things generally small? Does the team prioritize organization? And only after I kind of have my bearings on, on the overall, like, lay of the land, then I might start considering, like, particular statistics like churn. Where are the hotspots in the application? Like, what files tend to change a lot over time? And what's the nature of those files? Like, for example, very often a lot of applications will have, like, just a couple of God objects that just keep on growing, keep on demanding change. And I think really healthy teams that maintain their code well, tend to be spinning off a lot of that complexity into first-class, well-named objects over time, especially as they start to accrete complexity. That's a real whirlwind of a handful of things, but I think that once you've gotten the experience of trying to size up dozens of projects over the course of a career, it becomes actually more difficult to articulate exactly everything you'd be looking for. It's more, I know it when I see it. (laughs) And of course, the one thing I didn't talk about was like the people and how they communicate and how they talk to one another and how they describe aspects of the system. But that can be really, really important to you. For example, a lot of 
high-performing teams tend to be able to describe what their system does in relatively humble, plain language, whereas the more kind of highfalutin, more technical, convoluted-sounding people tend to make their application sound, that can often be a defense mechanism to sort of, you know, imbue importance and imbue significance where it can actually just increase the barrier for other people's understanding. And so I, I tend to look for is the team able to communicate what their application does plainly and simply, and does the code reflect the language that they use to describe what the system does? When you're touching on, say, looking at churn, are there some approaches that you're, or tools that you use to help you kind of determine which files in the, in the repository are being changed most often? Yeah, there's a gem called Buell, B-U-L-E, that Chad Fowler put together years ago, which is a real simple set of basic analyses. I think Mike Feathers proposed that just looks at exactly that and a couple other metrics. Another thing you might do is just kind of bounce around GitHub's own charts that it generates on, on every repo to try to figure out certain things are certainly interesting, like, for example, the punch card to see how much people are working on weekends versus weekdays and that sort of thing. How does your team at Testable define and talk about technical debt? One time... I'd proposed to give a conference talk about technical debt at Ruby Kaigi, and I'd, I'd never spoken in Japan before, I'm pretty sure. They actually, like halfway through in the run-up to this conference, invited for me to like transition into a keynote slot, which really increased the pressure on me. I thought that meant that they'd want like a softer talk, but it turns out that in Japan, they actually quite appreciate highly technical keynotes. So they're like, no, we don't want to hear about your feelings. We don't want to hear about testing. We want to hear about refactoring and technical debt. And so I use that as an opportunity because I think when you're in a keynote slot, it makes sense to kind of invest a little bit more prep time into your talk to build a gem called Suture. And so this is a Ruby gem that tries to sort of replay the steps in Mike Feathers working effectively with legacy code book, replay them sort of stage by stage where it starts by identify a seam by which you've got some, some code that, that, that you might want to remediate or, or might want to be able to change safely or, or, heck, maybe even rewrite. Then it can go through and help you facilitate certain actions, like record playback, all of the different calls that are going to the first thing so that when you try to write a second implementation, it'll tell you whether or not it's behaving that same way. And then there's a way to ossify that into a test case. And then there's a way to like kind of have a double entry accounting where it'll run through both code paths, the old one and the new one in staging. And then there's a final one where in production, if the if the new code ever disagrees from the old code, maybe raise an error or a log or something like that. And And I wrote the gem almost as an exercise to facilitate a technical conversation about technical debt. Because what I've found over the years is that, and to really answer your question, when you describe technical debt in even more layers of metaphor and human terms, it can be pretty easy to lose the narrative of what you're really describing. Because at the end of the day, all I really care about, and all most business people really care about when we talk about what is ultimately described often as technical debt is I just want to keep changing the system. I just want to keep adding features. What is slowing us down from doing that? Because the lived experience of most teams is that when they're starting with a blank canvas and they start to get that kind of first kernel of productivity and they start to get that engine moving, they get hyper productive. Maybe not the very first stage, but like maybe the second stage of the rocket moves really, really, really fast. But then most teams, complexity starts to mount. 
the business asks for more edge cases, more options, and the, all those are represented as ifs and elses in the system that then have to be considered. And this combinatorial explosion of different pathways that things could go down, they just inevitably lead to lots and lots of complexity. Some of it's intrinsic. The combination of all the different paths the code can take is a form of intrinsic complexity. There's no real getting around it. But a lot of it is just incidental. We happen to organize the code under one set of thinking, and that thinking is no longer a really great model for how the code needs to be in order to implement this next feature that we were just asked to do. And how do we as programmers describe successfully to a business why it's taking us 50% longer to ship the next feature? As I've gotten a little bit more and more removed over the last few years from day-in, day-out software delivery, I've begun to empathize a little bit more with product owners and, and business managers for whom words like refactoring, words like technical debt have become four-letter words on their teams because all they ever hear is those terms couched as explanations for why work isn't getting done. The human mind is just really good at perceiving deceleration. <laughs> so if you felt the wind at your back and you felt a team go really fast and now things are going slower, that deceleration experience can just feel viscerally really upsetting to everyone on a team, but especially to the people who maybe understand least about the structure and the nature of the code. Maybe I failed in my, my effort to not like just mount more metaphor on top of metaphor on top of metaphor here, but that's honestly how I conceive of technical debt. Are we able as a team to continue working at roughly the same speed that we were working at before and assuming that every team is going to slow down as the system gets more complicated, it's just natural, are we able to understand and mitigate that effectively well enough to communicate it clearly so that we're not just using, you know, kind of hand wavy terminology? Right. And do you find that when you're working with other teams or even within your own team that there's maybe something that developers often get wrong when they're trying to describe to say stakeholders project you know product owners or what have you about what technical debt actually is or mislabeling things well i think that there is always a risk when you're a programmer you're under a lot of pressure to deliver programmers i think in general are often thrust into roles of professional responsibility and accountability to be shipping stuff well in advance of their ability to cogently and calmly understand and describe exactly what a system is doing. The combination of a high-pressure environment where you're being held accountable to get stuff done with a sort of shaky understanding of the fundamentals of like what you've just built. You know, like if, if somebody starts a new Rails app, it's their first Rails app and they scaffold a thing and, and it talks to the database and it saves things. On one level, we should pat them on the back and say, hey, look, you made that. But on the other level, they didn't really make that because 95% of every stack trace is going to be framework code that's doing all the work. If something halfway down that stack blows up later or is the cause for why some other feature is more complicated and they don't really understand what's going on, when it comes to trying to save face when you talk to the rest of your team at a standup or when you try to explain why, you know, the feature that you were working on isn't going to ship inside of the sprint or why maybe it's taken you way longer than anyone expected to get done. That person in that moment probably doesn't have great language to use to describe the particular predicament that they're in without completely undercutting the perception 
that they're a professional that understands everything that they're doing, right? So there's a sleight of hand, right, in this industry where a bunch of people kind of come in as professional developers, maybe even working their way up, you know, senior level 15 principal engineer or whatever, but really like at the end of the day, never got the foundational understanding that they needed to be able to clearly articulate like the nature of a problem in a way that somebody with less experience could understand. And that's how I think we wind up with this sort of shell game, this sort of, you know, moving of the goalposts where we say, hey, well, this just needs to be refactored. This is too complicated. This is this is too big. This is too indirect. And, and we sort of obfuscate the conversational layer up so that we can ha- kind of hide from the foundational pain points that we're experiencing. Sure. And how do developers go about learning these traits? You know, it was a really interesting experience for me. When I was in college, most of my college curriculum was split between C++ and Java. My first job out of college was a big consulting company, big accounting firm that, that did technical consulting. A few of the first experiences that I had in my first month there were really humbling and frustrating. I remember I, re- I reacted with denial and deflection at first when in an orientation call, somebody told me, oh, well, you know, we hire a lot of fresh out new college graduates. They can only write spaghetti code because like, you know, you don't really learn how to write code in college. And here I had just dumped, you know, six figures on a college education. And I was like, well, hey, I, I learned a few things, mister, but at the same time carried a deep seated fear of my own incompetence. And so I really wanted to prove myself. The rubber hit the road right away when I showed up for like my first week at, at work and they're like, okay, so, and maybe this is because it was an accounting firm. And so they just expected that all new graduates needed to have some sort of, you know, credentialization process to be going through. Cause all the, the accountants of course had to study for their CPA exam. They handed me, you know, a requirement that I had 12 weeks to pass the sun certified Java programmer test for the current version of Java. And I was like, okay, well, I'll figure that out. And so I buy a book and of course the book comes and it's like 1200 pages. It was supposedly the best book and I worked through it and I read it cover to cover and I studied it and I took the practice tests and it took me almost all 12 weeks to realize that I never really knew Java in the first place. That was really humbling. When I got through it, I eventually did pass that test. I understood so many things in hindsight that tripped me up over the course of my entire college career of like, just WTF. So like, why can't I make Java do this? Or why is the Java doc formatted in this way? Or why are method signatures typically designed this way in, in, in the general like standard library that Java shipped with, you know, different aspects of string internment and performance characteristics of the JVM. And what's this hotspot thing all about? Like so much like mystical terminology that I just had gone in one year out the other had actually been very important information that I just simply never had taken the time or had the opportunity to learn formally and carefully and slowly. Because at the end of the day, 12 weeks is just like stick your head down in a book and like learn fundamental stuff that isn't actually immediately practicable. That's an unusual thing to have in our industry where we're just trying to ship stuff as fast as humanly possible at all times. That was a formative experience for me because it made me really understand that like you as a professional programmer have a responsibility to understand the runtime underneath you, understand how it works, what it is. To learn that stuff is fundamentally at odds with the expectations that are placed on us all the time to only be thinking about the top of the stack, the visible behavior of the systems that we're building and how to get those going as fast as possible. So I've always viewed those 
two things in tension with one another? How do I get stuff done as fast as humanly possible while also carving out enough time to understand, no, but how do things really work underneath? So as you co-lead a consultancy, as do I, I would love to focus on a topic that is near and dear to me. What do you believe are some important things to keep in mind when you first start diving into another team's code base? I think the most important thing, whenever you're visiting somebody else's work, and this hopefully extends beyond software, the longer that I do this, the more that I have come around to the idea that software systems are like a sedimentary rock. We sort of just layer on bit by bit over the years. In the moment, every change that we make, every commit that we make is completely explicable. Everyone in the room basically knows why are we taking the actions that we did? Why are things designed this way? We have in our brain all of the constraints that we're under uh, on that day, whether it's time pressures or, or limitations or even a lack of understanding of a particular business or market condition, or maybe things were just different at that point in time. To come to a system after at layer 3,242, And to just say, well, you know, this is clearly wrong or this is clearly bad or to just walk in and presuppose that, you know, why things were done the way that they were done, because you'd seen a sort of similar pattern emerge in the past is hugely arrogant. There is no quicker way to to raise the defense mechanisms of like everyone around you than to fail to respect for the people in the room when they look back on their experience. There, there are no surprises as to how they got to where they are. There may be problems, sure, but I think that when you're a guest in somebody else's code base, you need to really honor and respect the fact that like fundamental attribution error is a thing. You know, if you'd been the one in the room, if you'd been building that, you'd have nothing but rationalizations and reasons for why things are the way they are. But because it was somebody else, you're far less likely to cut them the slack that you would cut yourself. So. That's the kind of (laughs) mantra that I have to tell myself because I can be really, I jump to like very, very rash judgments and conclusions very quickly just based on how many code bases I've seen. Sometimes I'm like, oh, this is a dead ringer for that, this, that, and the other thing. And I just have to store all that deep, deep down until I've built up enough empathy and, and context to be able to deliver whatever I observe through a framing that's going to be well received by folks. Do you have like a story to share about how you might have gone in as a guest and tripped over yourself a little bit early on? One thing that I didn't adjust to very well was the asynchronification that kind of came in 2011 and 2012 and 2013 as GitHub became a popular workflow. Up until that point for the previous five or six years, I'd been engaged mostly on or at least in the, in the, you know, the late aughts, I had a four or five year run of being on co-located agile teams. And we would, you know, use literal index cards and we would write our stories on index cards and we would tack them with thumbtacks against a board. We designed our own swim lanes and our own definition of done. And we would work together and we'd pair program on stories. And then when they were done, we would usually have some sort of step to make sure that they were good like a QA step where somebody else would put on a testing hat and try to break things. And once they were done, they were done. But there wasn't necessarily like a whole lot of chatting and there wasn't a whole lot of email and there wasn't a whole lot of formal code review because everyone paired on everything and we changed our pairs every time we did a story. And so we all had a pretty intimate understanding of the code base. And when GitHub became so famous for like Zach Holman's talks, like builds GitHub by using GitHub or whatever the title of that talk was. 
asynchronous communication, like using Campfire and now Slack. Using pull requests is the primary mechanism for getting stuff into master, into a code base. I didn't realize just how much textual communication is read differently than being in a room with somebody or hearing somebody voice to voice even. Neutral language when you're in a room with somebody is usually read neutrally, but like neutral text in a code review is very often read negatively. Like if I say, hey, why did you do that? And I'm sitting with you, you're going to be like, oh, well, because of this. If I write, hey, why did you do that word for word and in a code review, you're going to think that I'm asking that rhetorically and condescendingly, right? And you're going to get defensive or you're going to feel put upon and, and, and judged and condescended. And one solution that GitHub proposed is like just use lots of emoji. And that's true. You know, you can definitely color things up. But then, you know, even over time, if you don't genuinely mean things affectionately, it starts to look itself kind of cynical and sarcastic. In the beginning of that transition, I had a few experiences where either I took code reviews way too personally and too negatively and didn't really realize the effect that the medium was having on me, or I failed to respect that when I was reviewing other people's code and and understanding how it made them feel. And even to this day, I'm not real happy with (laughs) code review culture as it's developed in the GitHub era, so to speak. I feel like I have some experiences in a similar way too. It just... Being on the other end, yeah, providing feedback on someone else's code or vice versa, it's always this, it's hard to know how people are reading into things or not. And then becomes a little inefficient in some ways versus having some of those in-person conversations. But it's, it's where we as an industry have moved. And so is the solution for you, Ben, to use way more emojis than you would ever think was possible? Yeah, you know, I mean, that's one solution. Another one is, I think, there's almost a Conway's Law effect When we say Conway's law, we usually mean this bi-directional relationship of, you know, organizations tend to, over the long term, resemble the communication patterns of the people building the systems. One thing that I really loved about those agile teams that I described was we were able to build these single monolithic Java code bases where we all knew all the models and we all knew all the DAOs and all the 50 layers that you have in a Java code base. Because we were sitting in close proximity, we were able to work very, very closely together in a shared space with minimum churn. When you add distance, whether that's distance across like asynchronous time or like you're no longer co-located and you're adjudicating these sorts of collaboration points, not in person or maybe not synchronously, but instead asynchronously and over more formal means like like, like a GitHub code review, then I think it can become more appropriate to actually design systems with that distance in mind. So instead of trying to all work in exactly the same place, create a little bit of distance where maybe features are a little bit more discreet. Maybe they have a little bit more room to breathe. Maybe they're spun out a little bit more. And how that might look in, say, a Rails application is maybe we just start to develop more features over in like lib and they kind of stand on their own and they kind of grow as they go. Maybe that's separate gems. Maybe that's Rails engines. One of the things that I like about this as a mental model is that I think a lot of teams oscillate. A lot of people oscillate between seasons where they feel like everything should all be in one place and seasons where they think like everything should be a microservice and everything should be spun out. And instead, what I look for is who are the people making it? What's the team? How do they collaborate? How do they want to collaborate? And how can a system that they design maybe reinforce the ways that they want to interact with one another? 
or at least better reflect the ways that they are going to communicate with one another and not try to force a system design that's going to really only benefit from a different type of communication than they're really going to experience day to day on that team. Right. I think that makes a lot of sense. So let's take a moment to talk a little bit about Testable. What do you folks specialize in there? We are a group of generalists. We're mostly polyglots. A lot of us have, you know, 10 plus years experience as programmers, and a lot of us have, you know, almost uh, the same amount of time just as, as consultants. So we have seen a lot of teams. We've seen a lot of different problems, and, and we've worked with a lot of teams to try to make things better. And what Testable does is we work with teams that just are looking for senior developers because we're not like a high-powered sales organization is a really easy prospect right now because everyone's looking for senior developers. And we say, look, if you agree with our vision that software development is kind of broken and could be better, and you also need strong, experienced developers to help build stuff, then consider placing one or a pair of our developers on one of your teams and we'll just work as a remote extension. We'll get stuff done alongside your team, working as you work with your process, with your tools. The nice thing that you get is you don't just get a senior developer when you pair with somebody at Testable, but like you get somebody who's actually a seasoned consultant who's seen a whole lot of teams, who's going to be taking a lot of notes of just ways that your system could improve, maybe ways that your team could communicate better. Those might be process changes that they might ultimately like, you know, recommend and, and help you implement. But all of that's going to come downstream after we've built credibility and trust and strong relationships with the people on your team. And so our goal is to not just build great stuff for our clients who we say on the tin, right? Like we're developer consultants who come in and build things with you, but we also want to leave every team better than we found it and leave an impact on the industry that is overall a positive one where after we leave, one of my favorite things to hear from past clients is that retention went up, that people actually liked where they worked more due to our impact working with them. And so we're a pretty simple, you know, straightforward consultancy, just with lots of other kind of benefits, because we happen to care a great deal about helping teams find a more humane and sustainable pace to work with. How involved are you these days in the recruitment of new hires at your company? I would say pretty involved. One of the things, and I'm sure that you have this experience too, running a consultancy, your outbound marketing isn't really all that bifurcated between, hey, you know, come work at my company as, as a new hire. And hey, same audience, like, are you also looking for consulting services, right? And so you're kind of speaking with one megaphone out publicly. And what I found is that um, lots of people who who want a job will come and DM me and, and, and we'll chat about it and get them into our recruiting process. And lots of people will come and DM me or email me and, and suggest that, hey, their team might need a little bit of extra help for the next quarter to get stuff done. The things that I'm saying publicly are a single signal. Here's a little bit about our vision of the industry, how we think software should be. Here's a tool that we wrote to kind of help make things better or a blog post that we wrote. All it's doing is really offering people who read that an opportunity to latch onto and see if it resonates with the way that they view how software could be better. So I'd say for that reason, I'm definitely pretty involved in recruiting, but it's actually kind of reassuring how indirect of a pitch it is. So when you're recruiting developers who are going to be producing code and consulting, what traits do you look for when you're talking with these potential candidates? Because consulting is a little bit different than just being a programmer, right? Yeah, absolutely. And so a lot of the, the skills that we talked about earlier about being able to 
cogently, clearly, calmly explain complexity, explain the fundamental nature of a bit of code that you're looking at, describe the design trade-offs for one approach over another, describe in like a, a return on investment or in business value terms, like why a particular pattern or a particular testing strategy or a particular like, you know, deployment process why that might be better or worse than another option. That's super duper important. And it's not enough to just be somebody who can be a good role player on a team if you can't also engage in those kind of higher order discussions of the trade-offs that software is just full of. Separate from that, I think that consulting really benefits from folks who have a lot of drive and a lot of empathy for trying to make the experience of software development better for those around them. So for instance, one thing that a lot of our recruits have done, but not by, by no means all of them, a lot of them have just defaulted to sharing the stuff that works for them, whether those are tweets or gists or blog posts or writing open source, they tend to just have a wider aperture of wanting to share the positive and instructive things that have helped them with other people. And so we look for a lot of those signals and our qualification process has gotten pretty good at identifying those types of people. But there's another aspect that is probably worth mentioning that what we're not looking for is people who think that they have figured out the silver bullet or the secret for how to build perfect software perfectly, because we don't think there is such a thing. And we're pretty sure that even if there was such a thing, it would maybe be true in one particular context at one particular time, but it certainly wouldn't be applicable to all teams all the time. And so one thing that we are careful of when we're recruiting is that we want to find pragmatists who are also very, very open to and receptive to the fact that every single context and every situation is going to be different. And that means that no matter how much experience you get as a consultant, you're going to be going into a relatively volatile, somewhat hostile environment that is different than, you know, how you'd want things to be. And that you're not just going to be able to force your favorite way of doing stuff on every situation. And nor should you want to, because I think that the, the humility that kind of comes with people who are really good in those environments is that they're able to realize that, hey, I showed up on day... 3,000 of this team and things seem to be going pretty well for them because they're in business and they're able to afford my rate. So let's learn about what's working well for them and how they've been able to succeed working the way that they work while I also try to find ways that I can contribute to make things even better as opposed to just explaining the universe in terms of the delta between how I think everything should be and how this particular team or this particular company are operating and how do I drag them towards that ivory tower that I envision every team, you know, reaching at some point. Do you have much success on bringing in, say, junior level developers into that type of environment? You know, I used the words volatile and hostile earlier, and I, I kind of mean them. I mean, like, this is a tough job, and it doesn't get easier with just having more developer experience. I think it's almost a necessarily tough job at every stage. I was 22 when I started my consulting career, and I was really inexperienced. I'm really glad that somebody took the chance on me in that environment. And to be honest, it was a bit of a trial by fire. You know, it was really stressful. It was really scary. It felt like the expectations were just impossibly huge. And I was pulling my hair out. Actually, I did lose a whole lot of hair the first few years that has since stabilized. 
it was, you know, sort of a product of like a different era where people had different expectations of programmers now can kind of write their own ticket, right? Like we have, we can get pretty cushy, really comfortable jobs pretty easily. It's just the way that the industry has gone. Everyone's expectations of having a relatively kind of comfortable existence are different than they were when I first started. But when I first started, I was getting like literally yelled at in rooms often. And I was being, you know, pressured to work nights and weekends often and explicitly. It was often really hair raising and scary stuff. And I say all that to say I grew a lot through that. I learned a whole lot of ways of how to not build software through the like the beginning of my software career <laughs> as a consultant. And I got to see lots and lots of super duper broken environments. And I got to be a part of lots of teams that were really struggling to try to do the best thing under really, really death-defying circumstances. All that to say, like we've built a company that tries to do its very, very best to create a great work environment for our consultants. Being remote takes a lot of the edge off of being in like a tough environment physically. But even then, things are still hard. And the best that we can do is offer like really, really good support to our people through really great account management, through one-on-ones with managers. And we've really leaned hard on don't hide people from hard situations. It's not exposure therapy, but like they need the honest, real, raw experience if they're going to be able to develop the reflexes that they need to really serve clients well. The thing that we've tried to do is to provide the right level of support at each of those stages. That's what we, that's how we've really balanced it out. Whereas like, you know, I didn't really have a whole lot to come home to at the beginning of my career. Now we have like several people that each of our people can talk to work together and collaborate through difficult experiences at clients. All that to say, like we are getting there. We have several people who are like less experienced than we've used to had. And we're, we're starting to tackle like bigger and more complicated projects. And our goal is to get to the point where we can bring in people with a variety of different life experience, but like who might just be newer developers overall. But we're always trying to balance that with how do we provide like a safe, supportive environment that we're really confident that we can provide the like level of support that we need so that people aren't being asked to take on more than they can handle. That's important to be mindful of that. I think my company has the benefit of having a central office where everybody mostly works for most of the week. So we're in person with each other. So we have juniors and interns coming in, you know, on a fairly regular basis. And if we didn't have that kind of like face-to-face communication, I'm always curious how other companies that are more distributed are navigating that because someone might be right out of a boot camp and they don't have a lot of experience yet in the industry. So how do you effectively teach them that stuff remotely, but then also potentially putting them in, you know, in a client scenario right away as well. Yeah, there's no easy solutions, right? What I was trying to get at earlier is just the nature of consulting is that you can't necessarily define all the parameters of your existence. You know, you can't create a completely controlled team setting. You can do to some extent with having an office or like us with people being able to work from the safety and the security of their own homes, but it is an outward facing role. And that means that there's always going to be a certain amount of variability. And of course, it comes with this tremendous benefit of you get to see a lot of the world in a lot of different contexts. But there's definitely the opportunity to get scraped and bruised no matter what level of experience you are. We'll be back with my interview with Justin in just a moment. Justin in just a moment. That's fun to say. 
Hi, it's me, Robbie. I wanted to thank you for listening to the Maintainable Software Podcast. If you're finding these discussions valuable, please consider sharing it amongst your peers on social media and or writing a review on Apple Podcasts to help spread the word. It'd be really helpful. Thanks again. And now back to my interview with Justin Searles. Do you find yourself from time to time speaking with budding software developers when they're navigating the approach, trying to find a job and whether they should go look at a product company first or consulting path first? It's important to understand what a person wants to accomplish and to provide them with advice that's going to help them achieve their goals. People change jobs often enough that like you're not really setting them necessarily down a path that's going to you know dictate the next 20 years of their life or anything. For example, if somebody's talking to me and they're like, hey, I really want to work on Ember. I'm really excited about Elm or I really want to try, uh, I don't know, domain-driven development. I'd probably point them to find product companies that are using those things. We can qualify that if you were hired, you'd have a pretty long runway of being able to go heads down and focus on having that experience, building something using that thing, and then we can figure out what makes sense after that. Whereas if somebody is actually just looking for a variety of experience, they're trying to understand, you know, like where do they fit into the software industry and like what their voice or their particular contribution could be. And they're like maybe like a little bit less fixed to a particular tool or technology or process, then consulting can be a great way to discover that because you're going to get so many more inputs and see so many different ways to be that you almost can't help but develop a voice in the process. And usually, if you take the time to talk to somebody for 10 minutes, you can kind of tell which direction makes the most sense for their next step. Very often when people are first starting out, you know, having the increased focus and safety of just be able to develop the technical competence that they need. Developer consulting would represent too much walking and chewing gum at the same time, maybe for the stage that they're at. So finding a healthy team for them to work on and cut their teeth on is often the right call in that case. So let's imagine that there are a few listeners who are thinking that their team might benefit from bringing in an external software development team, say like your organization, for a period of time to help them with, say, reducing technical data or improving the code base or helping them work through that ever-growing backlog. Maybe the person listening is not a decision maker at the organization, but are starting to wonder if maybe they should bring it up with one of their stakeholders. Perhaps they're hesitant because they don't want to convey to stakeholders that their team can't handle the work on their own. What advice might you offer them on how to approach that topic? You know, that's a really good framing. And honestly, when, Robbie, I mean, your, your consultancy is like this. Ours is also like this in that like our primary audience when we talk to people on the internet at conferences are other developers. Most of the people who bring us in to help them are just developers who maybe shared our contact information with a manager or a tech lead or a director of engineering or or just raise the possibility of working with us. And so I want to be clear that it is through developers who, you know, share our vision, who want to make things better and who know that there's an opportunity to get some help to get some work done, who are like by far and away the drivers of our businesses. And I'm super duper grateful for that. But at the same time, like, I don't want anyone to feel like forced about it either, because at the end of the day, like, if you just really, really want to work with a consultancy like yours or, or like test doubles, then if it's forced, it'll come across as forced. But if it's coming from a place of like real deep understanding of like the situation that your team is in and your company is in, then it can be a solution to a problem and it'll come across that way. So for example, 
let's say that you've got some big third quarter objective to ship a big thing. You're doing planning and a lot of people are raising a lot of like, you know fear, uncertainty, and doubt that the thing is going to get finished or that if it gets finished, it's going to be at too low a level of quality. Or then somebody maybe comes in later and says, hey, well, you know, we'll drop this ball over here if we focus all of our efforts on that. And in that context, describing how, you know, having an outside consultancy come in for a short period of time to help stabilize part of the system or maybe to focus on this secondary thing or maybe just to kind of, you know, make sure that as we develop this new thing, we're also checking a lot of boxes around making sure that it's going to be a stable platform on which to build in the future. Then suddenly that can make a lot of sense relative to just ramping up recruiting and incurring in the process the additional kind of, you know, cost and distraction of lots of interviewing and lots of onboarding, especially if it's just a momentary push. And so that's just like one example. But I think that when you're a developer, you know just as well as anyone what like the best next step for the team is. If you consider all the different options and it really does sound like bringing in short term help from, you know, experienced developers is the best bet. And then hopefully you work in a place that you feel safe enough to voice that without it seeming too artificial. Some good advice there. I always, you know, in a similar position when we're companies contact us, it's always curious to find out whether or not we were suggested by, say, an internal development team, or is this like a stakeholder that went off on their own to go look for help because they don't feel like they're getting it from their team. And those are very different conversations and consulting and engagements for sure. Yeah. One of the things that I look for that I have a lot of empathy for is that just having been in a consulting role for, for as long as I have you see a lot of developers kind of chart the trajectory of their career through one or more product companies. And so maybe like a developer that I met at a conference in 2009 was made tech lead in 2011, and then, you know, maybe enters a management role in like 2013, and then is like a director of engineering in 2017. I've seen this play out so many times that as they start to develop a clear and articulate vision for how they believe software should be, their own individual ability to affect change and to contribute that style of software or impose, you know, like that vision on the code base actually becomes more diffuse and less direct. And it can be a frustrating thing because as they're able to more clearly see the world that they want to build, from a software perspective, the more that their week is just meeting upon meeting upon meeting and that they have to work through maybe one or two or three layers of indirect management to just subtly influence the change that they want to see. So a lot of our leads come in through, you know, those VP of engineering's who maybe they know us from the community or they see our work online and they're like, yes, these people share my vision and it's the vision that I have for this company and we're just not there yet. And I would like to help close the gap. And so I want to bring in, you know, a couple of developers from Test Double as allies towards working down like the path to that vision in a way that's not going to be, you know, overly turbulent. We don't come in with with hats that say we're coaches, mentors, change agents, or whatever. We're just developers who see the world a particular way, and we try to work with people to make things better as we go. That's a natural enough story that I think a lot of technology leaders who share our vision of building high-quality software, they make fantastic clients. I have a lot of empathy for folks in that in that situation, and I think we're a really good match for people who are simultaneously wanting to set the vision for for their company or for their engineering teams, but also 
respecting that there's no replacement for working hand in glove with developers to improve practices and improve design. So as you reflect on your years of experience and you're thinking back to that early on in your career, what's one of the best lessons that you find yourself reflecting on most often with new hires and like sharing a story about what you learned early on? Yeah. So earlier I described this tension between wanting to do what is being asked of me to ship working software as fast as I reasonably can, while also knowing deep, deep down that the more that I understood the system on which I was building software, the better things would turn out. You know, I'd be able to act and operate with a greater degree of context, needing less rework and being able to more quickly react and respond if there's bugs or problems or just sort of the unforeseen happens. And It wasn't a piece of advice so much as just the opportunity to pair with one or two really special developers in my career who, when they saw something confusing in a stack trace, they didn't immediately break out and go and Google or jump onto Stack Overflow or search for GitHub issues. They actually like just looked at where that code was in the stack trace and pulled down the source code and looked at it and read it. And they continued diving up and down the stack as much as they needed to, to understand what was the, you know, dependency actually doing. There was no source of truth that was going to be more accurate or tell them the honest behavior that they were experiencing better than the real code. But the thing about it was like, you know, real code is scary. If I'm working in a Rails application and something's happening and I don't understand it, and I'm looking at a gigantic stack trace of all these methods written by all these really smart people around this really famous framework, I can't help but be intimidated. And I think that that a lot of developers have an almost instinctive just aversion to really grapple with and dive into the code that sits underneath their application. Enough that, you know, when we see an error message, we're all inclined just to Google it and hope somebody has run into exactly the same thing. One piece of advice that I would give is to learn the tools needed to open up the code that you're calling, the code that you depend on, whether that's in a node modules directory, whether it's a jar source file, figure out what you need to do to be able to easily jump into definitions of code that you depend on so that when you have, you know, a question or that when you're trying to understand, you know, like why is something not working the way it is, you have a very convenient and easy experience of going in and out. Now, whether or not it makes any sense and whether or not you're able to read the code, like that could come later, but a prerequisite is like getting really comfortable at least peeling the the layers of the onion back. No one really ever explicitly encouraged me to do that before. And so I think that that, what earlier I described as a tension of like, how do I reconcile this desire to just ship surface level visible features like on top of this Jenga tower of dependencies and also at the same time really understand like the runtime that I'm ultimately building things on top of. The only way to reconcile that is probably incrementally and iteratively figure out how to connect the dots between the application that you're writing and the actual behavior that you're seeing by navigating the different layers of source code between you and that. It's honestly, it's like supposed to be, right? Like the one awesome thing about everything being open source these days. And yet for some reason, we don't take advantage of that nearly as much as I'm sure anyone would have predicted 20 years ago. I hear you there. That just a couple of days ago, actually, last week, I was pairing with the junior developer on an issue that they're encountering. 
they were doing some Googling on some stuff and I'm, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but you know, uh, they asked me to come sit down and just chat with them a little bit about it. And one of my quickest inclinations is like, well, it seems like we were dealing with an issue with this related Ruby gem might be doing something a little weird. Like, let's see what's, what's going on there. And they're like, okay. And they went to go to the GitHub page. And I'm like, whoa, 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 we just run bundle open and it'll open up in your editor. And this is the exact version that the application's using. And they're like, oh, I didn't know that I could do that. And I'm like, yeah, and you can start messing with it now too. It was just like this like aha moment for them. So yeah, and you can put statements out there and you can doodle around with the code and you can do that with Node just as easily for sure. With that, I have a few last questions for you. So what programming book do you find yourself most often recommending to people in our industry? I think that the single book that I've recommended the most is Growing Object-Oriented Software Guided by Tests. And that's a book by Nat Price and Steve Freeman. They're two of the original or founding members of the London Extreme Programming community, which is still definitely going strong. It's a really, really strong community there. The reason that I really liked that book was it helped me understand an approach to... Now, the book is about test-driven development. It's about outside-in, like using mock objects to allow to emerge a design of your system as you go. But what it really did for me was unlocked a way to build a practical routine workflow for building small organized code bases that have great names of tiny things that have a reasonable sense about where everything is, why it would be there, how hierarchical it is, where like, you know, the, of course, the outer layers have this easy to find place and all of the nested layers of water carrying underneath, like those are all appropriately tucked away one or two or three, you know, layers deeper. Reading that book made me realize that like I own the ability to design my own workflow to arrive at those outcomes and that it takes practice like anything does. And so whether or not you practice test-driven development doesn't really matter so much as like at the end of the day, what you end up with is like self-explicable, well-organized and working code. And that was a path for me that worked really well. So I love recommending that book for others, if, if only in the hope that they might have a similar kind of aha moment. And where can people find out more about you online and follow along with you? My id is probably closest map to my Twitter profile, which is twitter.com slash Searles, S-E-A-R-L-S. My ego is probably my GitHub activity feed, where I spend a lot of nights and weekends hacking on various open source things, but, but most recently a lot of Japanese language learning stuff. And my super ego is probably currently focused on Testable's blog, where I've sort of been in editor-in-chief role for a while. And we're looking to relaunch the blog soon. And, and I'm hoping to provide a lot of uh, kind of slower form, longer read content to share some of our thoughts on where the industry is going. And that's at blog.testable.com. Awesome. Well, it's been such a delight having you on Maintainable, Justin. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thanks for your thoughtful questions. And I, I, I hope to be back soon. Oh, 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 oh.